0: Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Scott Luton and special guest Keith Singleton with you here on the latest edition of this week in business history. Keith, how you doing? I'm outstanding. Let's go on Scott. It is so good to see you. You know, you have appeared throughout kind of various installments of the supply chain now history and and now this week in business history. And I'm so excited because while we have known each other for a long time. You are a fellow and hopefully I can I can say this you're a fellow history nerd like I am. It's one of your passions in life. It is And, a and we get to talk history today for the next 30 40 minutes, right? That that's refreshing and and, and good. I'm telling you. <laughs> <it. laughs> well, folks, as I mentioned, this is our latest edition of a new thing we're doing. Biz History Live. It's associated with our this week in business history podcast, which really focuses in many ways on lesser-known stories of leaders and and innovation at the intersection of, you guessed it, business and history. We drop a new episode every Tuesday, including the replays of our live sessions. And Keith, I don't know if you've checked these out yet, but Kelly Barner is my co-host, my esteemed co-host. She brings all the literary and the real writing chops, and she drops a handcrafted masterpiece every other Tuesday. So y'all check that out. In fact, Keith, I think I've got a graphic of our latest. So this is the latest episode that we published today. One of Kelly's episodes and it focuses on Julia child. Okay. I haven't, I haven't checked all of it out just yet. Clearly someone was when they said only a businesswoman. we all know how iconic and how successful and how impactful Julia child was far beyond just a business person. And check out this quote with enough butter. Anything is good. Keith, <laughs> I can get behind that. How about you? <laughs> Butter is like sugar. It goes into everything. Oh <laughs> man. Don't you know? So folks, check Amazing. that out. A new episode today published by my talented friend, Kelly Barner. And you can find that if you search up this week in business history, wherever you get your podcast from, you can check that out and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. But Keith, today, With this newer aspect of our biz history programming, we're live. We're live across, uh, I think, five social channels right now. We welcome comments from folks as they want to comment on the the stories we're going to be talking about. We've got four interesting historical moments to share today. Is that right, Keith? That's right. Now I brought my four. Did you bring your four? Kidding, kidding, kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding (laughs) we've got four good things and I bet we're going to be sharing some things that folks haven't, you know, connected dots on. I was surprised by some of the research we did. So with all of that said, Keith, we're going to dive right in. Let's do it. You ready to go? I'm ready to go. All right. So this first thing, I'm going to pull up this graphic for a second. and Folks can kind of check this out as I go through this. Number one on our list today, we're talking Titans of fast food. So some folks may not know Wilbur Hardy was born August fifteenth, 1918, in Martin County, North Carolina. Keith, after leaving the family farm with a dream of becoming a musician, I think we all have dreams of becoming musicians at some point or the other, right? Wilbur ended up serving in the U.S. Navy. And Keith, I believe you're a Marine, right? Marine veteran. Right. Yep. Absolutely right. Marine Corps. See, we just kind of established some kindred spirits between you and and this story on the front end that we're uh, going to walk through. So after World War II, Wilbur Hardy found himself working as a grill cook at a restaurant. So as we're going to about to find out, that experience was critical because it planted a seed in his mind that he uncovered a new passion. He wanted to become a restaurateur. Yep. I think I said that right. And of course, an entrepreneur. So by the late 1950s and early 1960s, Wilbur Hardy opened five different restaurants along with his wife, Catherine. Including something called the silo in Greenville, North Carolina, in the early 1960s, Wilbur heard about a restaurant, a little-known restaurant, that had just opened in Greensboro, North Carolina, and it was generating a ton of buzz. Keith, any guesses in terms of what restaurant you think that might be?
1: Guesses wise,
0: I mean, we've all we all know the Ray Kroc story in McDonald's. Yes, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, that Ray Kroc story. So, as Keith guessed it. Wilbur Hardy, Wilbur Hardy. I keep wanting to say Wilbur Marshall and and switch it and say harder Wilbur. No, Wilbur Hardy decided to take a trip to that McDonald's on Summit Avenue in Greensboro and check it out for himself. He would park kind of in a out of the way spot and just observe a lunch service at McDonald's on a Sunday morning. So Keith, he was stunned. Wilbur Hardy was stunned that the business did about 170 bucks in an hour which may not sound like a lot, but you got to consider two things. That was 19, mid 1960s dollars. But number two, the hamburgers, Keith, were 15 cents. Right. That's a bunch of burgers in an hour, right? Bunch of burgers. A lot of volume. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And efficiency and order. And that's right. Processes and, and, of course, popularity. So he, after he had that eureka moment, Less than 11 months later, using what he learned from study McDonald's and his restaurant experience, Wilbur opened the first Hardee's hamburgers in Greenville, North Carolina. Now, he chose that first location because it wasn't far from East Carolina University, and he kept the menu simple, focused on burgers, fries, mm, fried apple pies. Right. Keith, we're going to get in trouble talking <laughs> hamburgers and fried apple pies, right? And shakes. May, let's make it worse. Milkshakes. So Wilbur Hardy also heavily marketed the char grills that he installed. And that was a differentiator in his in his view. It would help bring more flavor to the Hardy's burgers versus the McDonald's competition. Better tasting burgers, he thought. So the response, Keith was overwhelming and this this may not be the this image here i believe is the first one if it's not the first it's one of the very first ones right one of the first hardy's hamburgers so i want to pause just a second so keith you you grew up i, I always want to go to oklahoma although i know you've got roots in a couple of different places right have you have you had hardy's around you whatever journey because really it's predominant in the southeast and the midwest i believe it is i mean you know it's interesting if you do some
1: research on this later hardy's would combine with the name carl's jr yes and in oklahoma city it had one of the first stores that had that off it was one of the cities that offered both carl's jr and hardy's i didn't know that so i did grow up going to Hardy's. okay I did grow up going.
0: Man, you start connecting the dots and it's a really small world and, 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 and blessed be the ties that bind always comes to my mind. A phrase does. So going back to this, the Hardy story, you know, before some of the expansion that Keith just alluded to. So immediately, right, right out of the gate, especially having already had restaurant experience and, and having all the success of the movement that was at the time, you know, this fast food. Quick service was as a new notion, right? Right. So Wilbur immediately was thinking about expanding. And about that time he was introduced, uh, luckily, or maybe unluckily, depending on how you look at it, to a couple of partners, Leonard Leonard Rawls (laughs) and Jim Jim Gardner. yes. So what happened next after the partnership was formed, that's where the story varies a little bit based on who you talk to. What is an absolute fact to what you were alluding to that the, the partnership soured very quickly and Wilbur Hardy lost controlling interest in the partnership that governed the restaurant chain that bore his name. Now, Keith, I bet your research turned up the same thing. Some say it was a bad poker game and he waged his shares in the poker game. Man, right. that's bad news. Others say that it was a hastily signed and unread legal document late night session with Lots of adult beverages involved, and there were lots of signing of contracts that Wilbur did not read. But regardless, just a couple of years after the partnership was formed and then went sour, Hardy would be bought out by Gardner Gardner and Rawls for, there's two figures I've seen, $20,000 or $37,000, those two figures I came across. I'll pause there for a minute, Keith, and I don't know about you, but, but I don't sign legal documents playing cards, or dr- after drinking any adult beverages. Huh? Any, any beverages. But, you know, the in- interesting thing on this
1: is, is that uh, what I liked is he in a later interview, he admitted that he, he just did something stupid. Yes. Uh, real remorseful about it. It's, it's great to hear that he later went on and made money. Yes. That's the positive aspect of it. But, you know, I guess this fact in history is, is that they actually took the they took this thing nationally and made it into a franchise in August of, of 1963. Hence, you know, celebrating Business Month here in August. So, it's right, interesting. You hear more. You, you you hear plenty of success stories that are in this same vein. Unfortunate, but it happens. happens. They've made lots of
0: money with heart. Uh, also doing here. here. Well, you know, I like a couple of things you acknowledge there because because he did just own up to it later in life right and there also is a, a, a happy conclusion to the story and i'll drop this so i can share a couple of these comments i'll get to that in just a second uh, let's see here amanda loved going back to julia child so she's a big fan we're both big fans of julia child there's a great new movie a newer movie that came out that we've enjoyed and, and series too i believe and she says her dad loves hardy's biscuits yes that's what that and the Frisco breakfast sandwich, if I'm keeping it real around here, Keith, yes. I, I can't do it anymore. But in college, I could eat three or four of those at a setting. I, again, we can't do it anymore as much as I would like to. Have you ever had this Frisco breakfast sandwich? I've had both of them. You know, the biscuit just kind of took off in the 80s. kind
1: of branded itself with that
0: breakfast biscuit. Yes. Yeah. And so in the very 90s very and 2000s, they got into some interesting creative average. advertising. Yes, Goodness. they did. Uh, I'll I'll save the footage for a later time, but Catherine is going to need a burger for dinner. I I think all four of us, and and by the way, big tip of the hat to Catherine and Amanda for helping make production happen today. So Keith, let's get back to, as we wrap up this first story, the better side of how this thing turned out. So as Keith mentioned, you know, 18 or over 1,800 locations that exist today across the southeastern Midwestern U.S., that's Hardy's and, and, and Carl Jr., I believe. Hundreds of millions of revenue, just under a billion dollars revenue in 2021. You know, The namesake of the Hardy's restaurant would be out of the business based on that early split, but right. he would not be deterred. Wilbur Hardy would not be deterred. He and his wife, Catherine, made one heck of a team. They'd open a variety of very successful restaurant ventures. I think one was called The Little Mint got it to be, I think, 50 different locations. Right. And they largely lived the good life. He passed away, unfortunately, but after a wife, a life well lived on June 20th, 2008. So all told, I think I saw one other comment out there, Keith. I think one of his daughters said that he didn't like to be told, and I'm paraphrasing, he didn't like to be told anything. Right. So once he lost that controlling interest, you know, the dial was kind of set. And number two, he really was passionate about starting things, right? It he, he wasn't as much of like of a maintainer. That's not where his juices were, you know, you know, got excited. It was more on the starting and founding and new ideas and stuff like that. So I can get that Keith, but you before we talk food one more time, your final thoughts on the story of one Wilbur Hardy.
1: You know, the biggest thing that comes to mind is resilience. And the, uh, the ability to put a mistake beside, behind you. And he did that. He did that really successfully. And it's sure something did. that most business people have to learn how to do sometimes. You have to learn how to have a short memory.
0: You got to miss past mistakes. You're so right. Kind of like the sports analogy, right? Clo- baseball closers. Right. If they blow a save the night before, they got to they block that out and forget it and move on. Can't Definitely. let it impact their you know, appearance the next day, right?
1: Next right. game. Right.
0: All right. So, now for the billion dollar question. Keith, where do you go if you had if if you had a private jet or if if there was something in your backyard or a local community, where is your number one spot for getting a good burger?
1: <laughs> when I'm in Oklahoma, I go to Water Burgers. Okay. All right. Is that, is that what That's what I do. I love Water Burgers, but here in Georgia, it's
0: Wendy's for me. Okay. <laughs> Wendy's makes a good burger, Thank and you. we could do we could do a, I'll have to do a future episode on Dave Thomas, who was quite the personality. What I have read about is the personality you saw on the TV commercials right. wasn't the whole whole shebang. There was a lot more to Dave Thomas, huh? Right, right. All right, so we're going to have to leave the topic of burgers because we are getting way too hungry. Looks like uh, hey Sheena. Also, is a big fan of Whataburger in Oklahoma City. You ever been to? You know, Sheena, perhaps the daughter. Oh, really? <laughs> all right. Well, Sheena, hey, as I was saying, blessed be the ties that bind. We're all members of the Keith Singleton fan club around here, so you didn't know you're. You may not have known you're the daughter of a legend. So great to see you, Sheena. And I'm. A, I'm. A, I've never had a Whataburger, Keith. What makes it so good? You know, they're they're handmade. You can you can make them to order, and it's just it's just the taste. Okay, all
1: if right. Yeah. if we if there's one here in 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 the Atlanta area. I have to take you
0: to it. Okay, let's. Yeah. Hey, we gotta I gotta hold you to that. <laughs> so, all right, let's shift gears. We got to get away from talking food for a minute. I'm getting too hungry. I want to talk music, Keith, and we're gonna sure. take it back old school. And I have to say this because I'm an old fool who's so cool. Any 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 any. <laughs> Any idea what song that's from? I have no idea. Oh gosh, that is that is a tag team. There it is, and you know they made a comeback. That song was really popular when I was a senior in high school. Okay, and I love that commercial they have come out with recently. I think it's for one of the big insurance companies. Okay, and it is so funny. But anyway, that's enough. Enough of my cheesy singing. Let's take it all the way back to the compact disc. Yes, believe it or not, CD. Goodness, I remembered when this became a thing. On August 17th, 1982, the world's first commercial music compact disc, a.k.a. the CD, was released. It was an album by the iconic band ABBA entitled The Visitors. Now, some folks would argue that it was a Billy Joel album CD, it kind of part depends on how you define it. But hey, according to my sources, ABBA was the world's first com- commercial music CD. The compact disc technology was developed collaboratively by the companies Philips and Sony. There's a big story there we can't get into here today. Right. As you know, Keith, I bet you had a collection. I know I had a collection. CDs would become the dominant format, format for all things, especially music, throughout right. the late 80s, 90s, and into the new millennium. And we all know what happened in the 2000s. Digital technology would start to take over. You know, we had iPods come along, where you could store, you know, thousands of songs in a small device, and no need to, you know, join BMG Music Club and get right. 12 CDs for a penny. Remember those days? Absolutely. Uh, but all that ate away, ate away, ate away at uh, both record and and compact discs. But one final thing, I'll get your comment here, Keith. Much like vinyl records. Many industry analysts say that CDs, get this, are making a comeback. CD sales grew in 2021 for the first time in 20 years. So, Keith, tell us, where do CDs stand? Where do they sit with you? Do you remember those glory days where we all had the the, uh, the catalog of CDs for house parties and whatnot?
1: I still have my catalog. so (laughs) They don't go away, you know, but. It was really interesting to hear about ABBA being the first group that released on CDs. I I do remember that time frame, and 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 this particular artist was a Sony person. It was Michael Jackson, and his his album Off the
0: Wall, it just really took off on CDs on that mm. format. So I've got a follow up question that we're gonna we're gonna take it back and get the scoop on you and perhaps on me, but really quick, Amanda, Amanda's telling herself she still has a huge book of CDs that. She kept in her car in high school and you had to hide them in the back seat when you got out of your car so they wouldn't get stolen. Yeah, That was, was, uh, you know, some of my bigger catalogs, you know, I want to say it held probably 60 CDs and and gosh, for a while there you get, it'd be 15, 20 bucks for a CD. So that was a, that was a bad day to get your CDs stolen. Mm -hmm. And she also confesses she got a lot of CDs from BMG. I got my first, collection notice Keith in my entire life from BMG.
1: Yes. The scam, of course. Yes.
0: <laughs> they they give you twelve CDs for a penny, but what they didn't right. say in the ultra fine print is that there were lots of shipping and handling charges and then you yes. had to buy certain amounts per year. And if you didn't if you didn't pick one, they were gonna invoice you and you know so anyway <laughs> I'm glad I settled with the BMG. <laughs> Mafia, the team. But let's get to the nitty gritty. Your first? Do you remember your first ever CD? Was it Off the Wall by Michael? It Jackson? was mine. Okay. Was off the Wall. That was your first ever. Okay, it was my first ever. Excellent. Out historically, I mean, one of the most dominant albums of all time. So mine was Candyman, and I meant to grab a graphic. So get this, my beloved mom. Maybe tuned in today, Leah Luton from Aiken, South Carolina. Uh, When, whatever year that was, I got, I got my first CD player. You remember it was a very simple device, but it was like 500 bucks. Right. right? That was, that was, that was basically my Christmas one year. Right. Right. And so of course she didn't want to just give me a CD player. She wanted to give me a couple CDs that, you know, so I could use it on, you know, when we opened up gifts. Right. So she went to Camelot or disc jockey or whatever those mall stores were and say, Hey, What's the hottest CD and in, in act right now? So she pointed the the, the uh, assistant, the retail agent, pointed to Candyman, which I don't I don't think you've ever heard. He, I think he was a one record and done rap artist. He's okay. he has been sampled a lot, quite a bit. I'm going to spare you and not try to sing a couple no, don't of books. But <laughs> go ahead and give us go. Oh uh, no! no.
1: God, too long.
0: Oh no! But I hear Amanda laughing around the corner because she knows how bad the first time I tried to drop a line or two. But Candyman, picked out by my mom, was my first CD. Okay, and we wore that thing out, whatever the winter and uh, the winter and summer of I don't know nineteen ninety two or something. So we'll see. Well, have to, I have to go find the original somewhere in one of those big catalogs. Okay. Uh, Catherine would keep mixtaped CDs in her car for all the long drives. You ever make those mixtapes? Made the mixtape. Okay. All right. Amanda, lots of people got their first collection. notices from BMG. Thank you for bailing me out. Amanda makes me feel a little better. Her first CD was the cranberries. Do you remember that group? Uh, (laughs) Linger. Linger was, I think their first hit and it was, it was nice and slow and kind of flowed. And then, a lot of other stuff that I released was very upbeat. Right. No, great, great group, Cranberries. Okay, so we have talked burgers. We've talked about the Wilbur Hardy story. And and Sheena, hey, I'm looking at you. Hey, What was your first CD or your first album or your first uh, maybe song you downloaded? Love to get the scoop on you. We talked burgers and Wilbur Hardy. We have talked compact discs, including some of my Skeletons from the closet. Some of the CDs we'll probably never see again. Let's, before we move on, we got two more stories we're going to get through mail order catalogs and a great book that Keith and I both read as a kid. But the shippers group, Keith, you know, I've known you for uh, quite some time going back a a couple decades. You've always done some big things in supply chain. I've loved our practitioner conversations through those years. So tell us what the shippers group does. I mean, we're 3 PL.
1: mainly in, in warehousing and transportation. Currently where I work at, I work in Jonesboro, out of the Jonesboro facility. And I am actually doing work for frito Lane. So repackaging and, yep. and, and sending product both to the, to the, uh, to the manufacturing site and to some customers. So
0: okay, that is what I am doing right now. Currently big name, big brand customer making it happen. As all, but Keith, ever since our first conversation, you've been making it happen. So we're going to have to catch up in person. It's been a long time ago. Uh, We we were talking about uh, pre-show. We were talking about those. um, We would meet at the cheesecake factory in the perimeter area of Atlanta for some of those conversations. That area looks a lot different now, right, Keith? A whole lot different. (laughs) Well, big fans of the Shippers Group. I've known some of your colleagues there over the years. Great group, and I appreciate you carving some time out to talk history with a fellow history nerd here today. All right. So speaking of supply chain and shipping stuff, that's a perfect segue, unplanned segue, Keith, for our next, our third item of the day. So what did folks do before we had Amazon? Well, we ordered from these things. Yes, we did. Look at these things. So these are these are really old. We order from mail order catalogs. So now while most folks may think of Sears when it comes to the big old catalogs, the first company to publish one might surprise you. Montgomery Ward published the first mail order catalog on August 18th, 1872. Get this. It was, it was a small group when they launched it. I think I read earlier there's only a handful of employees when they first launched this. Like, I think it was like a one pager. Right. In 1872. But by 1904, they had over 3 million, 3 million customers on the Montgomery Ward mailing list. Wow. Now, even though, Keith, this also surprised me today. I didn't know this today. I was today years old, as all meme goes, when I learned this. Even though the Sears catalog discontinued in 1993, which I did know, you can still request and get a Montgomery Ward catalog. I was on their site earlier today. so that. Really? That surprised me a little bit. So here in the image, before we have Keith comment, the one on the left, you can, I, I got the date cut off, but that's spring and summer, 1875. So that's about three years after they, they launched these things. And one on the right is more from, I think, 1895. So you'll see kind of how it, it evolved a bit there. But Keith, mail order catalogs, before, long before it was Amazon, that's how, especially folks in the rural parts of the world got their stuff, right?
1: That is.
0: I mean, that's how... That's-
1: that's how many of the people that lived in some of the front, what was called being the frontier states, that's how they shopped. And interesting to me, I would have thought that the companies like the Montgomery Wards and Sears, we may have had this conversation before, Scott, would have yep. been successful. I know the, the Amazon concept really came from those forefathers there of just co- soliciting, collecting information, and driving the marketing aspect of the business
0: through information, you know, sharing. Yep. So, you know, I was reading earlier that, you know, so, so to your point there, the big thrust there was getting outside the big cities where folks right. had more options and supplies right. and stuff, more variety and, and really targeting the rural population. Right. Right. Well, the rural stores, general stores and, and, and like, they hated to see these mail catalogs pop up because of course it was new competition. So they, they would host burning parties of these catalogs, <laughs> and give people prizes that they brought them. So, you know, what's old is new. Again, the competition hasn't gotten any, the competition is just as fierce. It's just, it looks different, right? One last note, uh, speaking of competition, we were just talking yesterday. I think it was with Greg White and Kevin L Jackson about how Amazon and Walmart Right, the next chapter of their ongoing competition. Right, you know, fight for market share. It is fascinating, Keith. Is it? It's, it's it's fascinating. It is. It's very fascinating. I mean, but
1: you know, today's current technology makes it a it makes it possible to control the economies of scales a whole lot better. Yep, right? which helps manage inventories. It's a lot more real time, but it still it still gets back to the nuts and bolts of the business. What I think Montgomery Ward's really mastered. Was, managing the supply chain, get things that are cheaper.
0: Right. And not well, have carryover costs, things like that. That's such a great point um, because while many consumers and folks that aren't, you know, in global supply chain as practitioners or professionals or whatever, you know, right. many folks are new, you know, they've, they've really been introduced in, in good ways and bad ways over the last, you know, a couple of years, which is right. really part of the silver lining of this this challenging time we've gone through but supply chains always made it happen I, and you think about in the whole value prop behind the the mail order catalogs was it was coming to you at the price you commit you know the price you expect you know right. and and the convenience there and and you know even a house as we point out many many times right. Sears would ship an entire house to you back in the in the in the earliest days of of the mail order catalogs so If there's anything that has been consistent, it is folks in supply chain making it happen. So a lot of good stuff there, Keith. All right. So we're coming down the home stretch, Keith. We've got one more item we want to share with folks. And I think a a book that you and I both have enjoyed. I'm going to pop this up here on the screen. And this is Animal Farm by George Orwell. Now, some of our listeners may may be familiar with this book. This was published for the first time. The, the initial publishing was on August 17th, 1945.
1: 1945, now,
0: correct. And we were talking in the pre-show about some of the, you know, some of the history of that time and what really fueled George Orwell to write the book. And I, I'll challenge people to go, you know, you can go Google that and, and dive in deep, but this was one of my favorite books as a kid. I won't say we read this in the sixth grade or seventh grade. In a nutshell, if, if folks haven't read it, it or hadn't seen the two movies that have come out, it tells a story of a farm where all the animals rebelled, right? They drove off the farmers off the, 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 the property. Yes. They and did. then the animals, Keith, as we know, had to establish essentially a government, right? Rule of right. order. But that's where it gets interesting because eventually as the graphic to the right says, because they wrote all the rules on the side of the barn. And, and as the book speaks to, the rules continued to evolve because eventually classes were created amongst the farm animals. And because of that and a lot more, I'll, I'll save. I, I won't uh, give up the whole story, but the farm would become worse off than it was even when it was being run by the farmer. It, it right. was a, a bit of a disaster. So, Keith, I know you've read Animal Farm. What's your thoughts on this book, this impactful book?
1: It's an interesting parody on just what happened to the Soviet Union. Even, and it's really prophetic as to it predicted how the Soviet Union would probably devolve to the last point where the annals, some animals became more equal than others. And then the very last portion of the book, which is so prophetic, is you couldn't tell the humans from the pigs <laughs> by the end of the book. So oh, many of the capitalists that the humans represented the, the pigs became just uh, even more capitalistic, as what we see with some of the Russian oligarchs now.
0: So, You're so right. You're so right. And to our, maybe to our, any of our listeners that are listening to the audio replay, you will not see the graphic. The rule that we have up there, which is wasn't one of the first rules after the rebellion, and after, and you know, right at the moment where all the animals were in it in the trenches together, you know, right, everybody was on the same page. As Keith alluded to, it devolved. And one of the rules up here that, that the ruling class on the farm added to the list is all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. That. So that stuck with us for so long. So if you hadn't read Animal Farm, it was written back in 1945. And as Keith mentioned, not only does it is it applicable to what we've seen in the, so- the old Soviet Union, but in so many different movements around the world where, you know, People get what they want, and then all of a sudden, folks find ways to manipulate and, and, and accumulate power and other things. So, Animal Farm released on, I think that was what, August 17th, 1945. Okay. So, Keith, I appreciate you sitting in for these four stories from burgers, the CDs. A little ABBA, a little Candyman, a little Michael Jackson. Absolutely. <laughs> to mail order catalogs, some modern day supply chain lessons and respect for the profession to even international politics and, and uh, the human journey with Animal Farm. A lot of good stuff. What? Um. Care. So I know how to reach you. I know you're you're active on LinkedIn and, and and some social, but is that the best place if folks want to compare notes with you and and what you do in supply chain and or get your take on all things history? Would you recommend folks reach out via LinkedIn? Sure, reach
1: out to me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm fairly easy to find, and then
0: for those that know me, they can always reach out to me by email or just call me. Wonderful. And if you have any problems, y'all come through us. But Keith is uh, someone that needs to be in your network you'll be better off for it. And Keith, we got to We got to talk more history. I appreciate cool. you weighing in this afternoon and I'm going to hold you to getting that Whataburger
1: I'm on, a, in person.
0: Sometimes we'll get, get you there.
1: I'm going to get you there. Whataburger is better than Wendy's. I promise. Oh, uh, love it.
0: All Ask right. Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> so as we wrap here today, I want to thank my dear friend, Keith Singleton. I've probably known him for, for 20 years in Atlanta. Uh, appreciate what he does. want to thank, uh, of course, our production team. Big thanks, Amanda and Catherine and others that have been here helping to make production happen today. Thanks for all of our listeners. Hey, y'all be sure to check out the episode, the previous episode Kelly Barner released on Julia Child. You won't be disappointed. Be sure to find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcasts. Again, we drop a new episode every Tuesday. And uh, most importantly, On behalf of our entire team, Scott Luton, challenging all of our team and all of our listeners to be like Keith. Hey, do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And we'll see you next time right back here at This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.